Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to our new PR Week podcast episode with Arvind Hickman. I'm Arvind Hickman and this is the PR Show from PR Week. Today, we're going to take a look at how effectively the Johnson government has communicated during the coronavirus crisis and whether it needs a change in messaging and comms tactics. Recently, the government shifted its clear stay-at-home messaging for the more ambiguous Stay Alert, Control the Virus slogan, which has been heavily criticised by some in the media and PR industry. But is this backlash fair? And how must the government change the way it communicates as the nation moves from lockdown towards an easing of social distancing rules? I'm joined by a panel of experts to discuss government comms at this crucial juncture. Amanda Coleman is a crisis communications consultant and recently served as the head of corporate communications at Greater Manchester Police. Ian Kirby is head of media at MHP and a former political editor of News of the World. Annalise Cody is the president of healthcare comms specialist W2O Group International. And Steve Hawkes is head of strategic media at BCW and a former deputy political editor of The Sun. Welcome to you all. I wanted to kick off today's discussion by looking at how the government has performed so far. Annalise, I'd like to start with you. Given your healthcare comms specialism, how would you rate the government's comms during this crisis? Has the messaging hit the mark? I think the government came out strong with its stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives message. It really quickly enhanced the performance of the NHS, which was desperately needed that time. If you remember looking at what was happening to Italy and the National Health Service there. And it also importantly, it supported the private sector um, with the furlough announcements. But I think the stay alert is very ambiguous. And I think if you look at the stats, 65% of people say that. Um, but um, on the flip side, um, the messaging did need to evolve it to support the changing environment. We have seen that people have been afraid to go to hospital to get the healthcare they need. Um, so there was something that needed to be done 
And, you know, we have to accept that it's not a black and white situation. Things keep changing and the, the situation changes and evolves minute by minute. Um, whether it's from a healthcare perspective and an understanding of the science and clinical data that's coming through as to what's happening at a local level um, in terms of, you know, do local hospitals have enough PPE? Do they have the right level, level of consultants to support, et cetera? So there's lots going on. So, I, you know, I th I, if, if I'm being fair, I think, I think they're in a hard place. Ian, recently you were critical of this shift in messaging from stay at home to stay alert. Can you elaborate on, on why you were? I think we're in uncharted territory here in terms of the fact that we've all seen massive government communications campaigns. They've been on, on particular things, so EU exit, um, public health things like drink driving, but this is, this is very, very different. And I think the reason that, the reason that I felt in particular that the government, um, or particularly the political arm of the government, uh, misstepped was the fact that they evolved from very clear public sector messaging with simple phrases, one point of information per day coming from a Downing Street press briefing, and then documents coming out to a more political system where special advisors were pre-briefing stories effectively to test the message, which led to enormous confusion. Okay. Amanda, what, what's been your view on messaging to date and this recent shift? Do, do you believe it's sort of um, adding confusion? Yeah, I think that it, the very much like Ian said, I think it was really simple to start with. There was a very clear message. The unfortunate thing is, um, I think you can't sustain the same sort of approach. Um, as you move forward through the crisis, it's getting more and more complicated because it's everybody's position is slightly different. And, it, you know, if you want everybody to stay at home, then you've got to get very clear about what actually are you sort of wanting from people and, and what can they do to help because I think a lot of the problems you see is that people just don't know what the right thing is anymore um, and you know the 5pm briefing was really good to start with because it started you know it gave uh, some clarity a little bit of clarity around things but I think it, over time it's become confusing uh, potentially a bit argumentative at times and and unfortunately a bit repetitive because it follows the same format so um, I think as it goes forward, it's it's much more complicated. Right at the start of a crisis, you know, that first day, week, whatever, is, is much easier to deal with. It's much easier to do the messaging. But I have to say I have a, a, a dislike for slogans as, as you're kind of moving through a crisis scenario because it just, for me, doesn't work. And I don't think people uh, people really, unless it's very, very clear, like stay home, don't understand it. Do you think, Steve, in terms of the slogans, do you think this is sort of what the government, this government in particular, has been so effective at? If you look at how it won the recent election, if you look at how it won the Brexit vote, do you think that there is now is the time for a more sort of nuanced way of communicating rather than these sort of three-word slogans? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I mean, on the government, to, to be fair to the government, this is a pretty unprecedented time. I mean, we won't have ever lived through anything like this and, and they won't have ever cope to or try to cope with anything like this and we must always remember that but I think as people have said on here you know it's, it's not easy but it's easier at the start of a crisis to come out with immediate messaging um, and to be to help to be able to win plaudits for, for quick decisive action on stay at home and, and bailing out companies I think now it's going to be is always going to be much trickier if you look at countries like France they have a very similar message rested prudent which is the same as stay alert. I think what didn't help the government was the, the really bad way they, they put that messaging out with that shambolic um, 
statement on a Sunday and then the way that Dominic Raab on the Monday morning was sort of briefing against what Boris has said on the Sunday night. But I think you pick on a point there. There's two things that they're always going to be slightly behind events in a crisis like this. But also you've got a government and a core political team that is a very campaign driven team. Um, and it almost at times feels that they're campaigning against a sort of mythical COVID-19 party. You know, they've, they've won the Tory leadership election. They've won what was effectively a second referendum. And this, as you, as you say, is a different sort of thing. You have to be, you have to bring the whole country with you and be quite clear and decisive. And my worry is they don't seem to have a vision now. And what you're seeing in this vacuum, there's no ministerial interviews at the weekend. There's, there doesn't, there weren't many stories in this Sunday's papers. I mean, Ian might want to comment on that. There, there, there doesn't seem to be a narrative that they're pushing it. They seem to have lost an idea of where they want to be. And obviously having the prime minister in intensive care is not going to help that. But they, they quickly need to get a grip on this again. Yeah, I just wanted to touch a little bit on the daily briefings. As Amanda said, they started off being quite well received. But in recent times, it does feel that they've been a little bit more repetitive. What, is, what are your views on briefings in general and, and how they should evolve? I mean, should they continue to begin with? Well, I think, I mean, having been in the lobby, uh, I mean, I left there in October, there was always this constant gripe about the need for more press conferences and more transparency. They've given daily press conferences. But I think to Amanda's point, after a while, you run out, you almost run out of things to say. I mean, they were drawing huge audiences. Um, you know, the people were rebuilding their daily life around this press conference in the afternoon. But there, there comes a point when actually, what have you got to say? And I suppose once you've made the point of having a daily press conference, how do you step back from that to be two days, three days? when actually, things are still as serious. So they've sort of made a rod for their own back on that. And um, and some of the, the, you know, the chief medical officers and some of the medical experts there have been openly sort of challenging the government line sometimes. So it's tricky. I want to get Ian and Annalise's view on the briefings in general uh, on a couple of points. Firstly, should politicians be leading these briefings? And secondly, is, is the content that they're delivering right or has it become too politicised? Ian, let's start off with you and then we'll go to Annalise. So um, I think where the politics has crept in is actually picking up on Steve's point around the Sunday newspapers. Um, I was a Sunday political editor for many years and one of the things you always relied upon was different government departments to pre-brief a story on a Sunday. You'd normally pick one. So it might be Department of Health, might be Treasury, might be Home Office, whatever. And that would be the big Sunday story. And Downing Street over, over the last couple of years has demonstrated very, very tight control over communications and, what, and, and political communications in particular. And what that means, therefore, is that there is a vacuum on a Sunday and Sunday, Sundays are putting Downing Street under enormous pressure, give us the new line on, how do we throw the story ahead? And Boris Johnson's been writing for the men on Sunday, he's written for the Sunday Telegraph, he's given an interview to the Sun on Sunday. But I think actually what would serve them better would be very practical sort of fact-based communication. So, you know, the, the strategy that we are going to launch next week is going to be a business recovery strategy, the strategy that we're going to do, we're going to sketch out more details about contact tracing and that kind of thing. Is if you give the Sundays a solid story, it means that they don't do use the stuff that they've been grubbing around for all week that is probably going to be damaging to what you want. Um, and I think that's where they need to get a grip on this. It's a seven-day news cycle. And I also, sorry if I can just get in there, I think they also need to get a grip. There's quite clearly some ministers speaking. There's quite a lot of briefing going on, especially against Matt Hancock, and that's not helping. This blame game is developing. We've seen that quite strongly this week with PHE coming out saying, well, we don't need testing policy. Um, and ministers sort of squaring off against other ministers, and, and Number 10's got to get a grip on that. Mm. Well, what, what do you think about the whole briefing situation, Elisa, and the content and, and the people who are delivering them? 
Um, yeah, it's interesting for me to be slightly further away um, uh, from politics and more focused on the science. And two things really come through from my perspective is I think the general public do understand more science than perhaps the government think and can handle uh, more complex and nuanced messaging around the science. And we have to, and government has to set the expectation with the scientific, scientific advisors that this um, information will keep changing. What we knew about the virus 48 hours ago is very different to what we know now. And government has to set expectations that just because something happened two weeks ago and they said it, it might change. And just before we kind of came on air, there was actually, I just saw from The Economist, 7,000 papers have been published in the last three months just on the pandemic alone. And those have not yet been peer reviewed. So there's just so much content and information out there, just even from a scientific perspective. The second piece that we're seeing, um, particularly because we do a lot of international and global work, and, I, and I'm seeing this myself in the UK, is the balance between local and national. And I think we've just been talking a lot about the national newspapers there. What we're seeing is how a local approach has to become much more important in the nuancing of the messaging. We're seeing areas of the UK that perhaps have not been hit by the virus, and we're seeing other areas that have been truly swamped. And that messaging has to be different, and the ability of local communities to respond very differently um, to what's ahead of them um, needs to be addressed. And so I'm really looking forward to uh, a better telling of the science story, and a much more nuanced approach, the local, the regional, the um, international and national. Do you think these briefings or, or communications in general would benefit more if we had more people, for example, from the NHS leading them, some more real experts? Uh, yes, I do, because I think what they, they can talk to the science, the data that they're seeing firsthand, and also truly some of the human stories that they're seeing. Mm. Um, and so I do think I do think that's a very important part of the messaging as well. I think that's where New Zealand has done quite well. They had a very empathetic story in terms of coming together with unity um, and empathy, um, and then using the uh, scientific data for, to kind of you, you tell the emotional story. So I think it's very important. Amanda, I know you feel quite strongly about the messaging being localised, and I think we saw a really clear example, actually, when the whole Stay Alert um, slogan was announced. Uh, Scotland and Wales weren't on board. What, what do you think the government needs to do in terms of localising or creating more nuance in the messaging for different regions? Yeah, I think it comes down to um, a control situation, doesn't it? You can't control everything as you go through this sort of crisis, and particularly something um, as, as sort of the scale um, and uncertainty and um, something we've not seen before like this. You've got to be able to set some frameworks and then relinquish some of that control to the, you know, the the um, regions and. You know, the mayors have been particularly outspoken. I know um, Liverpool and, and Manchester and lots of other places. Um, and it is a very different, as Emily said, it's a very different picture across the country. And there is a, for me, there is a way that the national and local can really easily work together. I just don't feel we've got it at the moment. And I think that's that's a huge problem. And, what, and one other thing that I was going to say, just to pick on what I, I kind of Annalise said, my huge kind of... Um, problem at the moment is that the messaging just lacks totally lacks sort of humanity and empathy and the only way we're seeing that uh, human side of it is through the media and there's some very good stories you know and articles and things that have been written and, and things on Sky and BBC etc where they've captured that because of the scale of it I think the messaging that's coming out nationally just can't do it and, and that's where you I think people are struggling with with what we're going through is really to get uh, the heads around what it is and how it's developing. 
I, I guess the politicization of, of communications as well is another reason why that humanity isn't coming through. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I I would say having come from a police background, we we try and be, you know, you're apolitical as much as possible. So um, you probably can sort of not get too involved in that. I do think that's one of the problems. And I think, it, you know, as people said, if you look around other countries, actually somewhere the health isn't uh, seen as, a, you know, a political um football uh, you know you, you get uh, the the experts talking and people are a lot more receptive to it and you get a lot more around the sort of humanity and empathy um, coming through so there's lots to, to look at I think from some of the other countries around the world. Steve I want to touch a little bit on the point you made previously about how media relations between number 10 and some of the um, newspapers and journalists has soured quite a bit. I mean we've seen some quite sort of defensive and snarky responses by government departments to articles recently. What, what is your view on this sort of combative relationship between the two and how it is impacting um, the government's communications efforts? I mean, I, I do, I do smile at this because I mean, they've never. It's always been combative, you know. I mean, um, to a point, there's always been favourites. I mean, back in Labour's day, there would have been favourite papers, you know, under Theresa May, there were favourite papers, and now, I mean, it's. I can't remember who it was a, a moment ago said about control, and that's that's the one thing I think that this government is struggling with because it has always wanted to control the messaging, very very tightly, and and control every department very very tightly, and I don't think you can control something like this that much. I mean, there's been a couple of examples, the Guardian story about Dominic Cummings attending the SAGE meetings, the Sunday Times insight piece on the, the Cobras that Boris Johnson missed. Um, I think sometimes perhaps, I mean, number 10 won't like me saying it, but I think sometimes you, a government with an 80 seat majority that was unthinkable as, as recently as November, I think can perhaps try and rise above that, draw into all that. And there's always been tension. And I, I, I mean, what was notable in March, obviously was Lee Kane, the, the chief of staff coming into the lobby briefing directly and saying, okay, guys, look, there's a clean slate now. But the one thing that, I'm, sorry, just to get to the point, I mean, I think the one thing that underlies all of this Brexit still, that Brexit war almost last year was brutal. Um, you know, in Westminster, there were huge divisions. You know, you're either a Remainer or a Brexit sort of thing. And that hasn't gone. And I think you still see some of that now, where if someone's making a point against the government on this, quickly the government will say, oh, he's a yeah, or they're a Remainer. I think that underlies a lot of this still. What's the tendency, Ian, if you're a journalist, for example, just to explain, to explain to our listeners, and you have a lot of government pushback on something like this, and they're trying to control the message too much, what, what, what is the natural instinct of, of journalists and newspapers in this situation? Well, you're obviously always going to look for the dissenting voice. You're going to look for the person that is going to tell you, no, it's not quite as the government says it is um, you know here's some alternative facts that you need to look at um, and what you're also looking for is for the government to give you kind of you know the whip hand in terms of what's happening next you know that, that phrase from Josiah Bartlett in uh, the West Wing what's next what's next what's next that's what you're trying to feed I think there's an interesting point about about communications centrally as opposed to regionally the fact is that you know in Manchester and Liverpool you've got Andy Burnham and Joe Anderson who are both very erudite very clear very labour and therefore their natural position, particularly over the dying days of the... Um... Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Corbyn um, team, where Jeremy Corbyn wasn't really saying anything about anything, was to, they, t- they took up the slack. You know, you got the same in London with Sadiq Khan. And what that means, therefore, is that what the government would like to do is be, to be able to say, okay, things are different in the Northwest and here's what we're doing about it. But actually, you've got good spokesmen and good communicators up there going, what they're saying in London doesn't stack up with what we're seeing. So mm. a lot of criticism over things like care home provision, PPE, um, getting back to work, whether schools should reopen. Journalists are going to those people because they know that they actually control a lot of the things that are needed for that to happen. So that's a, that's a real... For, for Downing Street to try and tell that story clearly in the face of that. And, and unfortunately, the, the, the political instincts of people inside Downing Street, as opposed to the Cabinet Office and the Civil Service running the main communications programme, is to politicise and is to turn something into a, into a battle and a briefing. Mm. And at the moment, that's not working in their favour. Well, I imagine that must be counterproductive, especially in a health crisis where clarity and, and information is really important to get across. Well, with an integrated communications plan, you need your your PR, your media selling to augment the national message that you're trying to give. So the practical information that people need about what how they're going to carry on with their lives, how they're going to keep their businesses going, how they're going to cope with being furloughed, you know, whether, to, whether they can go for a run, whether they can have a cleaner in the house, you know, all these sorts of things. And by focusing on that and trying to drive those messages through, um, that's that's the proactive part. Defensive part is the fact that they are being criticised. You know, shortages in PPE, what's happening in care homes, and as a journalist, your natural tendency is to is to you want to be doing the inquiry into whether this is working well or in real time. So that's why the Sunday Times were very quick off the mark with the insight special that Steve highlighted. I think it's an interesting point, just just how difficult this is. And one thing we can all agree on is that it is extremely challenging for this government. I mean, the, the term unprecedented is often used, but this is one sort of crisis where it's very hard to plan. I mean, just just anecdotally, since they shifted to this stay alert messaging, I don't know what, what you've all noticed, but where I live in, in London, there has been a lot more people outdoors taking a much more liberal view on social distancing. And, and I think... What I really want to get out of this this podcast is what the government needs to do in terms of messaging going forward. Uh, Amanda, as a lockdown rule sort of ease and the economy opens up, can you just um, sort of set the scene for our listeners on how challenging this communications um, crisis is, um, how nuanced it is, and, and how it sort of needs to be tailored to different regions differently? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's I liken it to sort of a different threads and you're creating a tapestry. So it will become one picture, but actually you're going to have lots of different strands um, depending on who you are, where you are, what sector you work in, 
you know, it, there's going to be so many different sort of factors to it, which is why the localised approach is going to be the only way forward, really, to be able to effectively do that. Um, I mean, where I am up in sort of the northwest, the the northwest northeast, um, are really only starting to feel. Uh, some, you know, the rates are still really high. We're with two, I think, something like ten days, two weeks behind London. So the messaging can't be the same. And unfortunately, I think at the moment, I'm seeing the same as you. People not really understanding, and the social distancing isn't um, happening like it should do, and that creates a massive concern because. Whatever way we look at this, we're going to be living with this for some time. So the messaging's got to change from being there's going to be a start and an end and somewhere there'll be a middle and everything will will go back to to something like normal, if if you say that. It isn't going to be like that. So it is very much around getting those those messages at a local level, at a sectoral level, to be able to then weave that picture of what what it, it will look like as we go forward. Um, but that's incredibly complicated and certainly not, not something you can do on your own from a very sort of top central control way. Part of the problem, I think, is that as a nation, you know, we've had a period longer than the summer holidays, you know, stuck at home. And I think, you know, you've had the media for their own for their own calls have wanted the lockdown to end so people buy more of them and the economy gets back on its feet. Um, you've got Scotland, you've got the mayors sort of sniping against the Westminster government from that, from the way they see it. And I think it's very, very difficult. The government is obviously, the problem for the government, I think, is that at the start of all this, they made a lot of quick decisions because they had to. But now the failings that we saw in terms of, say, testing, care homes, tracing, the failings there to prepare are now coming home to roost because actually we can't ease the lockdown as quickly as we'd like to because we didn't do enough at the start of the start of all. And that's why I think you're seeing the government's poll rating beginning to go negative. We saw that in the in the Sunday papers, minus two, minus three, compared to plus 64 in March. And so they've really got to come up with a plan now. Annalise, it's an interesting point um, about testing and about all these different things that government has promised um, at these briefings and, and elsewhere, and, and, and some might argue fail to deliver. Uh, how much do you think this sort of damaged the credibility? And, and what sort of messaging would you like to see the government make going forward? And, and how, what sort of shape of messaging as well in terms of local versus centralised? You know, I I think nothing is more important right now than testing, tracing and isolating if required. Um, And um, dare I say it, if you don't have a strong policy, you can't have a strong communications. And uh, very much um, from a healthcare perspective, it does come down to the the tracing. Um, I think um, building on what Amanda said, the virus isn't going to go anywhere soon. And actually what people really need besides the uh, the tracing and the tracking is actually they need guidance and reliable um, information as to how to live with the virus. They need to actually understand how to reduce the harm reduction um, when living with the virus. And I think it's down to policymakers and health experts to help the public differentiate between the low risk and the high risk activities And this is where authorities can also support when somebody is in sustained uh, abstinence, by that I mean somebody's not come out of the house um, or it isn't an option what they can do. And I think there's been a lot of confused messaging over the last couple of weeks of what is low risk and high risk. And I think the general public's got to get used to the fact they're going to be living with this for 18 months, two years, if not more. And it's going to be a change of life, a change of behaviours that the government has to address. And if the government doesn't address it, 
and we need to look to other trustworthy organizations for individuals to get information from. I think one of the biggest concerns that we've, see, uh, that we've seen from our audience is the fake, new, fake news out there and people not getting the reliable information that they need to make the decisions that, that they have to do to carry on living their daily life. So um, I think we either, we either say the government's going to do it or we need to look elsewhere for other organizations. Maybe it's the WHO to um, be that platform um, rather than scandalizing and criticizing the government. Let's look elsewhere for the information that we need to move forward. Ian, that's an interesting point about credibility of information. And, and one of the, the recent stories um, that's emerged is reopening schools and how some teachers, uh, and I've spoken to teachers who are actually scared because they just don't feel very confident in, in terms of the communications um, versus the government's um, plans to reopen um, and the government giving reassurances. How, how does the government sort of get these industry stakeholders involved and, and how does it get other sort of businesses um, involved as well so that it can reopen the economy in a responsible way? Well, in communication terms, it's one of the toughest challenges that they've faced. You know, as was said earlier by Amanda, it's much easier to get day one right than it is to get day 71 right. Um, mm. And the critical problem they've got at the moment is that you've got, you've got teaching unions, individual head teachers saying, we're not happy, we're safe. We don't think it's, um, we don't think it's appropriate. And then you've also got newspapers like the Daily Mail today campaigning about militant trade unions trying to stop our kids going back to school. So it's a, it's a, you know, cutting through that is really difficult. I think the government did make a um, quite an effort to try and clarify this by talking about the infection rate. It's kind of what level R is at, whether it's a one or three or 0.4, and, and therefore at that level, then you you ease the pressure and you open things up. But I think the problem with that is that they didn't. They rushed that out rather too quickly, and they didn't think in communications terms. This is a scientific formula. It's quite hard for people to understand. So how do we communicate it? We actually need it to have. We do need to have some form of traffic light system or something that that normal people who who might not understand the intricacies of of the way that these formulas are reached can readily understand it. Now, in terms of reopening schools, um. I, I was curious that they started with the primary end uh, of schools. I understand getting people back to work and the need for childcare and end to childcare and stuff. But but actually, you know, the, the 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 older years, years ten, year twelve, those ones that are taking GCSEs and A levels next year, appeared to me to be a more sensible starting point because those are old enough children who can be disciplined, who can be who can follow a plan, who won't rush over to hug a teacher. And therefore, it was it was going to be easier to kind of do that in a more controlled way that schools might adopt. So I'm slightly confused as to why that process is being followed in that way. I think the only way that they can do it is by consensus. They tried to do it by bringing the uh, the teaching leaders in, uh, headmasters association, and others to Downing Street uh, as part of education. And I think they need to continue that process because they, everyone's going to need to be signed up. You can. Do doing that in quite an organised and structured way. And it's only really uh, Watford Football Club that is kind of dissenting from, from what is a plan to get, the, you know, to get football back. And, and also, just a final point on that, is what the Premier League are doing is they're following a, um, a method that's being followed in Germany that's, that, that's had general support. And I think looking at what's happening in France and other European countries where they have reopened and copying those techniques will work effectively for them.
Okay. Steve, do you have anything to add to that in, in terms of what, how the government sort of should engage with different industries and or different parts of the economy to help um, communicate a better message as, as it reopens? I think we, we touched on it earlier on in here about how, um, Minister, I think Ian mentioned it, about how people have almost floated ideas in the papers, seeing if they work. I mean, the government seems to be run by polling and focus groups at the moment, uh, rather than actually making decisions itself and to the point of, you know, seeking consensus. Because, you know, I mean, there, there was a story, I think, a while ago talking about how schools might reopen on May the 11th. And then, then it came to May the 11th, then June, then July. So all the, and that, that just, I think, gives the public a sense of, well, does anyone know what's going on? And it's not great to have all this stuff being debated in public. Look, it's great to have people giving their view, but, you know, if this is a sort of wartime government, then it needs to start, you know, taking people with them and then perhaps say, okay, we're going to do it in September, and here's why we're going to do it in September, and try and build consensus around that, because I think it just gives the impression all these different dates of a sort of government, not in chaos, but that doesn't really know what they're doing. And, I mean, that's why now... They, they almost need to win this battle on June the 1st because it's become this sort of titanic battle with the unions now that they need to do something. They almost need to win that um, to gain some more credibility with some of the voters and some of the public. And let's not forget the other thing that's coming down the track. Um, Brexit's coming back. You know, they have to decide by July the 1st whether they're going to leave the EU at the end of this year or, or delay it for another year or two years. And that's a huge decision, which is just at the worst possible time for them. Okay. I just wanted to ask Amanda um, and Annalise whether you had anything to add to that in terms of how government needs to engage with, with industry stakeholders and, and others. I think a lot of it comes down to as actually just starting to work downwards. So, it, you know, again, it goes back to what we've said before about trying to control things centrally. And actually, you've got to start looking at it from the people who are affected. I think this is one of the problems you've, we've got is that it, we're looking from the inside out rather than the outside in. So actually, if we are we speaking to people, um, like Annalise said, in a way that they understand, we're giving them the credibility that they can start to work out how to balance risks, um, that they can go away and come back with a plan. You know, I think we've got to, we've got to look at it in a, in a very different way than perhaps we are doing. Um, there's no easy way forward, but, you know, if it's, if you're, you know, working in a particular industry, you know everything about that industry inside out because you live it every day. So, you know, it, surely you're the best people, um, like with, you know, teachers, whatever it is, to be able to say, well, I think we can do this. I think we could do that, but these things aren't possible. And then you start to get a plan. And, and like we've said before, you know, you can't, can't communicate your, your way out of some of a bad plan, really, you know. So um, I think it, it, it needs to take that approach. Okay. Do you have anything to add to that, Annalise? Just to just to emphasise that really this the, the pandemic is not homogenous, and therefore we can't have that type of response. And it comes back to what Amanda, reinforcing what Amanda said. You know, we have to look at a local, a national, a global level. Um, you know, it's, we just can't have one size fits all messaging. And I know that doesn't play well um, uh, for the political party or government, but that's that's what we're up against. Okay. My final question, and I want, would like to I, sorry. My final question, and I'd like to ask each of you this: If there was one piece of comms advice you could offer the government going forward, what would it be? Ian, let's start with you. My advice to government would be: play the long game. Understand that you will get criticism. This isn't a battle to be won in terms of PR. A clearly, rigidly applied grid that demonstrates the government is acting in unison 
and also in cooperation with as many agencies as possible will be vital. So stop stress testing story ideas, stop responding to the, to the, the urgent demand by lobby journalists and actually go out direct to the people that you're communicating to. The NHS has done it really well. The documentary that was turned around very quickly on intensive care during the COVID crisis was a great piece of, uh, of structured, organised PR. And they need to seize the narrative. So they are telling the story of how they have taken on the, the COVID crisis. Okay, Amanda? Yeah, I think the time for broadcast messaging at the start of a crisis is definitely gone. Um, and this is where we're moving into needing to have a conversation um, with, with people. Um, and that's very much at the heart of what, you know, I think we should be focusing on is the real people, human impact of what's happening um, and how we can see it, it from people's perspectives to, to get the best way forward. Um, it's not about just figures anymore. Steve, what's your advice? I mean, it's similar to Ian's. I mean, I think I, it's almost like um, you'd say to a corporate almost, it's like project reset, you know, it's like reset. Think about what your goals are, three, six months, one year, and believe in yourself. I think they've forgotten about the levelling up agenda to the point we've made earlier about the regional thing. They've got sucked into this sort of Westminster battle. They need, you know, they, they came in to government on a very big levelling up agenda, and they've almost forgotten about the rest of the country beyond London and the South East. They need to get back on that. And I think, look, I mean, I tread carefully on this one, but they need to open up the quad um, before the four ministers that sit underneath Boris. Boris needs to get out there more, but I think you've got, you know, Michael Gove's almost like the chief executive to the, the board with Boris as the chairman. You've got Gove, Raab, um, Rishi and Hancock. I think you need to get, um, you know, Pritsky in there. I think you need to get a wider a wider number of people in there, more females. I, I, I genuinely do think that. Okay. And Elise, I'm going to give you the final word. What's your one piece of advice? Learn to embrace the ever-changing data, whether it's scientific, clinical, behavioural, geographic, demographic, fiscal, and you have to use that to respond and evolve the messaging in a very empathetic and human perspective to really ensure that you are resonating with individuals, with communities, and with the UK as a whole. And I think bottom line is we've all got to remember there is nothing more important than our health, and that's physical, mental, and also financial. Fantastic. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. How the government communicates will be crucial to the UK's recovery and PR Week will follow all of the latest developments. So please do check out our website and subscribe to stay up to date. I'd like to thank our guests today, Amanda Coleman, Ian Kirby, Annalise Cody and Steve Hawkes and our production partners, Marketeers. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Thanks for listening to the PR Show podcast with Arvin Hickman. Brought to you by PR Week. If you like what you heard, please leave us a nice review. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.